Hello and welcome to Dark History's Christmas Campfire 2022. For those that are new to the podcast, uh, this is a, a bit of an annual tradition uh, that we, I think this is now the sixth year um, that we've been doing it. And uh, it's kind of like the idea at the start initially was to sort of reignite the old tradition of kind of sitting around and telling ghost stories at, at Christmas. Uh, so this is our the dark history's little version of that i guess uh this year we had we had like seriously large amount of people writing in which is amazing um and i've spent the last sort of week basically like pouring through the emails um because basically as they came in i just flagged them and uh thought i'll look at them close to christmas and uh yeah i've been reading through the emails the last uh week or so and it's it's just been so much fun so without further ado, let's just kick off straight into them. We're going to start off this year with a couple of stories that are either about or, or related to uh, sleep paralysis, because I had a few stories of this. And uh, I'll, I'll explain why we're kicking off with that afterwards. But anyway, this first story is from Mr. Book, who is a, a long-time listener, um, pretty active uh, in, in, in the community over on Discord and that. Uh, and his story, um, say, is sort of related to sleep paralysis. So let's crack on with that. For the campfire stories, I wanted to share my experiences with sleep paralysis. I have four different experiences over many years, with every single one still frightening me to this day. The first time I experienced sleep paralysis was when I was six years old. In the dead of night, I was having a nightmare. The nightmare I can remember clear as day. I was in complete darkness. All of a sudden, I could see a pair of piercing eyes. They were far off until suddenly they rushed at me and woke me up. When I opened my eyes, I couldn't move. All I could do was look around and barely breathe. After what felt like hours, I was able to move and run to my parents for comfort. The next time I experienced sleep paralysis wasn't until I was 17. I'd just gotten home from school and went to take a quick nap. When I woke up from my nap, I again couldn't move like before. As I looked around... I could see a shadow moving around my room, slithering like a snake in tall grass. I could also hear my parents, but in somewhat warped voices right outside my bedroom door. All of a sudden, I could move again and went to check my door. Nobody was there, and I later found out nobody was home except me. The following experience with sleep paralysis was when I was 23. I'd just come from a long day at work. I don't really remember when I fell asleep, but I remember the moment I woke up. I couldn't move just like my other experiences and I could only move my eyes. While lying on my bed and trying to move, I could hear something or someone talking. Then, all of a sudden, the talking was right in my ear. The voice saying, It's all a web. It's all connected. You are a part of it. After the voice went silent, I was finally able to move. I looked around the room and saw no one or, or, or anything that could have been in my room. And I was also alone in my house. The latest experience I've had with sleep paralysis was back in September of this year. This has been the most intense and frightening experience so far. It started with a nightmare. I was travelling through what appeared to be a cave that was barely lit. I was stopped at the back of the cave by some type of monster. It slowly approached me and all of a sudden I was unable to move. I then felt like I was being suffocated and woke up. When I opened my eyes, everything was off in what I can only describe as the world being slanted. If you've ever been in one of those fun houses with the slanted rooms, then that was what I saw when I awoke. I was in a total panic, trying to fix my vision, 
And after closing my eyes several times, the world corrected itself. So that was Mr. Book's experiences of sleep paralysis. And we're going to go straight on to Libby, who also wrote in about her experiences with sleep paralysis. And she says, To give background, I'm in my 40s, and I've been plagued with night terrors and sleep paralysis and hallucinations since I was a little kid. I still get them as an adult, just less often. The year is early summer 2005 in Sacramento, California. I was getting my master's degree and working full time. My siblings were in college. My mum was a high school teacher and the four of us were renting a house together. In the house we were in, all of the bedrooms were upstairs. I was at one end of the hallway. My mum and siblings were on the other. I honestly can't remember the dream itself or how it started. What I do remember, vividly, is waking up paralysed and feeling the presence of a man spooning me from behind. I was frozen. I didn't look or see, but I felt the presence, and it was definitely a man. I could feel the eyes boring into me, hear the breathing, feel the body, and most importantly, feel the absolute malevolence that made my skin crawl. It was the most horrifying thing I'd ever experienced. I just prayed and tried to breathe, tried to make any noise because my vocal cords were paralysed, and waited, and it finally faded. I got up and walked out because I always had to get up and move around a bit to clear my mind enough to get back to sleep when I wake up from sleep paralysis. Now, so far, it had been absolutely terrifying, but not supernatural. Everything that had happened had a known, physiological, understood explanation. So far. I walked into the hallway. It's maybe three or four in the morning, and I saw my brother coming out of his room and walking down the hall to me. I said, I'm sorry if I woke you up. I just had a really bad night terror experience. He looked at me and asked, was there a man? I said, yes. He proceeded to tell me that he was dead asleep when something woke him up. He opened his eyes and saw a person, probably a man, in the chair in his bedroom, wrapped in a cloak, head down, not moving. He blinked and the man was gone. I told him what I experienced and we both just stood there, absolutely creeped out. We couldn't think of a single logical explanation for what happened to him and it seemed way too tied in to my night terror. We didn't sleep for the rest of that night, and all these years later, I don't have an explanation. It's not my only supernatural or unexplained experience, but it's by far the scariest. So thanks very much, Mr. Book and Libby. And I can testify, because the reason I, I, I wanted to open with these two stories was because, just sheer coincidence, last week I actually had sleep paralysis twice in the same week for the first time for years. So I thought I'd sort of share my own quick story of, of sleep paralysis. Um, and, I, and it's happened to me before. I, uh, back a long time ago, um, probably when in my, I was in my early 20s, I um, had quite a lot of uh, anxiety and um, it was making my sleep like quite difficult. And uh, I, I actually ended up having to go to the doctors because I, I started feeling like I was like, sort of losing the plot a bit like you know when you, you, if you suffered anxiety you, you i'm sure you'll be able to relate that sometimes you feel like like you're just kind of losing grip on the world a little bit and it's it's that whole kind of like anxiety sort of tension in your body it just makes you sort of feeling like yeah you're possibly losing grip or whatever and um and and this is what would happen to me anyway is, is i would get in bed and um as i was like falling asleep i'd just see like hooded figures all standing around my bed like on every side of the bed just staring down at me and they were like the figures from like ring race or something from or, or, or you know the dementors from harry potter or something like that but interestingly this was before either of those films i think um 
so you know it's just a, a, it's a kind of generic dark hooded like figure kind of thing um and 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 this happened to me like several times and and i ended up having to go to the doctors and saying that I'm, I'm really worried like that i'm losing the plot here what's going on and it was really funny because the doctor said to me like okay and, and then what happens and i and i was like well, I fall asleep, I guess, because that, that's that's all I remember, you know. Like, and I was like, "What's your point?" And then he was like, "Right, so do you not think that you already are asleep then?" And he, he the way he said it was very like matter of factly, and and it kind of made me realise, like, all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> but because I was in so much like anxiety, I, it just took that for me to see that it was obviously, you know, related to that, and it was just I was just falling asleep, and that was it, um, you know. And, and and these things were like sort of like sleep paralysis kind of thing rather than like sort of weird hallucinations or anything um and and after that it never came back it, it and and yeah it didn't come back for years um which was good i guess but but the other day the most terrifying experience and i and i hate sleep paralysis because um it is just terrifying like i i, I quite like having nightmares because you know it's, it's just good fun like what your mind can come up with you know i mean there are nightmares that are not fun but generally speaking i think my nightmares are kind of fun they, they're not anything too traumatizing do you know what i mean they're just a little bit scary and a bit fun um but sleep paralysis is a whole nother thing for me it, it, it literally i have to get out of bed and turn the lights on and like it takes a while to calm yourself back down and the other day was definitely an experience like this and i, I don't know why it came about because you know I'm, I'm not particularly anxious these days or haven't been recently and you know, but but it just sort of came up. But anyway, I was laying in bed and uh, it was quite early in the morning. So it was like the, the room was dim, but I could you could see. Um, and, and suddenly I must have drifted off to sleep because I, I was still laying in bed. But that was my dream. Right. So I, I, I was I, the dream was I was just laying in bed and uh, I could sense something behind the door. So my bedroom door, I always keep it like crooked open at night so my dog can like come in and come out when he wants and things and um and but i could sense somebody behind the door or something behind the door like they were just standing behind it right but not coming in and so i got out of bed and i and i woke up and i and i I looked around the door and pulled it open and, and there was me in a hood like with a hoodie with the hood up but i could tell it was me but i couldn't actually see my face because my face was just like this dark void but the body and that, I could see it was me and it was a hoodie that I recognised. And um, that was like weird enough. But then they, the me puts, like the, 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 the ghost me kind of thing, put its arms forward around my neck and pushed me back onto my bed, strangling me. And this is like obviously where I, the sleep paralysis kind of really kicked in and I started waking up because I, I was trying to struggle, but I couldn't and I couldn't yell or, or anything. And then eventually, like, if you've had sleep paralysis, like, f- finally you kind of do yell. Like, you know, like, like for me, I was kind of like really, like, I couldn't breathe and I, and I couldn't get any noise out. And then suddenly you yell and wake yourself up and it all disappears and you realise that it was all a dream or whatever. But that's, that, and, you know, that's how it finished. I, I, I just struggled until I could sort of yell and wake myself up. And, and then I realised that, you know, I was, wasn't a dark void human strangling myself <laughs> i was just asleep in my bed but really terrifying experiences and and so when i read those stories i just thought we'd open with it just so i could give you a little bit of a personal story as well because sometimes i feel like you know these dark, these christmas campfires i, I want to give my own stories but i've told my ghost story a long time ago so i don't want to keep repeating it but it's good that i could kind of contribute this year but anyway that's some sleep paralysis stories 
Now let's get on to something a little bit more supernatural. Well, I mean, you could argue there that uh, Libby's story was pretty supernatural, but uh, let's really dig into them now. So this one's from Ethan, and Ethan says, um, a bit of context. My father passed away very unexpectedly at age 39 when I was in my very early teens. We hadn't long reconciled after he and my mother had divorced. And after six months of not speaking, I had not long moved back to live with him, my stepmother and step-siblings. He died of an undiagnosed heart problem and I essentially watched as paramedics tried to resuscitate him whilst he passed away in front of me. Obviously, this was a massive shock and it turned my life upside down for some time afterward, just as I'd finally begun to get some stability. Around six months after my father had died, I'd ended up moving in with my paternal grandfather. He himself was still grieving my father's death and probably benefited from having me around. Whilst I had finished my last few years of secondary education and things had just about started to get back to some kind of normality. This was the house that my father had himself grown up in and I was living in his old room. This all felt both familiar and comfortable to me as I'd spent my whole life visiting this house and I'd never felt anything less than at home and happy there. One night, around this time, for reasons that made absolutely no obvious sense then, and I still can't explain today, I remember lying in bed, after dark with the lights out, and feeling absolutely filled with this extremely strong sense of what I can only describe as dread, mixed with a sense of expectation. I didn't know why I felt that way, but I still distinctly remember lying there, not knowing what was going to happen, but being absolutely certain that something was going to take place. I just didn't know what. As such, I basically wasn't surprised, though I was scared when I heard the faint sound of music coming up through the floorboards from downstairs. I walked across my bedroom, switching the light on as I went, and walked onto the landing, where I also switched the light on, and I could now clearly hear what sounded like generic radio music coming up from the darkened downstairs living room. By this point, I was seriously unnerved, so rather than go down to investigate, I instead knocked on my grandfather's bedroom door he being the only other person who lived in the house, and awkwardly just said, oh, I think the stereo's come on downstairs. He looked at me half awake and confused and went down into the dark. I heard him open the living room door, turn the music off, and then come back to me a few minutes later, still waiting on the landing. That's a bit weird, isn't it? He said. And with that, we both just went back to bed, and as far as I can remember, we never spoke of it again. The stereo had been one of my father's prized possessions and had been given to my grandfather after his passing. Fast forward a few years, and I was now around 18, and living with my mother and stepfather in a completely different location. It had been a really tough few years. My stepfather was abusive, and I was essentially just living in my bedroom, waiting to get out of there and escape to university in the summer. It was early January, and my mother and I had just happened to be discussing the effects that losing my father at the age I did had on me including the fact that seeing him pass away and viewing his remains at the hospital and then again at the chapel of rest afterward had been traumatic at such a young age. At this time, I'd had a bit of an arrogant teenage certainty that the existence of life after death was nonsense and I'd not long finished saying something to the effect of well, I know he's gone forever and that's it, he can't hear me and he isn't watching or anything when my mother stood up and said that she was just going to make the room brighter as it was starting to get dark and the touch lamp she had at that time was on the lowest of its three brightness settings. As she went across the room to tap it, before she could reach it, the lamp itself started juddering, lifted up off the table slightly into the air with nothing touching it, and the bulb suddenly went out with a ping, just as it does when a light bulb fuse normally goes. Simultaneously, both of the two doors at either end of our sitting room blew wide open, despite there being no breeze or wind that could have caused that, 
and a feeling I can only describe as heavy pressure moved on from the left door across the room and exited through the right one. The whole thing took place in the space of less than 10 seconds, but it was absolutely terrifying to experience. I instinctively just screamed, turn the lights on, as the room was now absolutely dark. My mother quickly hit the main ceiling lights on, despite the fact that she was terrified herself, and came rushing to sit next to me, shaking and saying, don't worry, it's gone now, it's gone. Neither of us have had any explanation for how any of this could have occurred. Being January, all the windows and doors in the house were closed at the time due to the cold, and we were the only two people in the house at the time. No matter how many times I've tried to come up with something in the years since, there's just no rational explanation I'm aware of for why a lamp would suddenly lift off the table on its own, with the bulb blowing and two doors flying open at the same time. When I try to explain the pressure that went through the room to anyone, the best analogy I can come up with is that sensation when you exit a plane having travelled to a hot country, and as you do, the heat just hits you and presses into you like a wave as you step out. Imagine that, but without any temperature, hot or cold, and that's what it physically felt like, coming into the room from one door, briefly filling it from left to right, and then exiting through another door. I still can't explain either of these experiences, especially the latter, and at 33, I remain open to almost all and any explanation, having little to offer myself in the latter case. Possibly as a result of having ASD, I tend to lean heavily towards data-driven, provable and logical explanations, which is why despite the context of my father's death and the discussion I happen to be having around the time of the second incident, I still don't let my emotions cloud my judgement and put what happened down to spirits of the dead, the supernatural or my deceased father reaching out, despite the lack of any obvious explanations for certain aspects of my experiences. I've accepted that I'll likely never be able to properly account for what happened, and to date, I haven't had anything comparable to either occasion happen to me since. Thanks very much, Ethan. So yeah, I, I, I can relate, and I think probably, I'll say this for your story, but it, it's probably going to be relevant for most other people's stories, but when I, with my own sort of experience if anyone's interested in that it's way back in Christmas Campfire 1 um, and, I, and I have sort of gone through the story since I think on a lot on a few live streams but um, it, with my own experience I feel exactly the same in that I'm quite you know these days I, I, I would consider myself fairly rational and uh, like I say like like uh, I guess sceptical um, but but not really you know, I would say more agnostic than sceptical. And, 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 but I always, you know, I try and look at for the most rational explanation, the easiest explanation first, um, before I start thinking, you know, anything is, is going on that's wacky. But, like, despite all of that, I feel the same as you. And I, I say I feel probably like a lot of stories tonight in that when I think about it, I just don't know how to explain it. What you know, I just don't know how to explain what happened or what I saw, and and I know it's that cop out, and and it's the worst thing, you know. I know what I saw, and I hate that. It's such a cop out when I hear that. When I hear people say that, you know, I always think, well, that's really not enough. I need more, and I and I, but I understand also why they say it because that's all you've got. You know what I mean? It's like all I can tell you is what I saw, and and that I trust in myself that that's what I saw and that's all I can really say. And, and, and that's hard to explain, isn't it? And, and you end up feeling, I say like that, that, that feeling of just not being able to explain it. Anyway, thank you for your story. This next one's from Steve. So the event I would like to tell you about took place in a house I used to live in as a young boy. 
The house was situated on a hill that snaked through a small village around three miles from the nearest town. The house was quite old, but not character property type old. There was no creepy gothic windows or dark basements. However, I was scared of ghosts when I was young. I did not need a spooky environment to fuel my fears. They did just fine on their own. I had a book, the Osborne Book of Ghosts, which some of your listeners might be aware of or remember that contained, as far as I was concerned, proof that ghosts were real. There were rumours in the village of the ghost of a Quaker that used to haunt the local churchyard at the top of the hill, and I was in equal parts terrified and fascinated by that idea. I would sometimes lie awake at night, picturing the apparition stalking his way around the graves up there, under the moonlight. I also believed in God at that time, and I add that in because it's my way of saying that I believed in a world that existed beyond this one, after we die. As such, it made sense to me that this soul could become trapped between this world and the next. One night, I woke up in what must have been the early hours, as I could not hear my parents watching television downstairs. The house was quiet, save for the odd car that streaked past the house and down the hill outside. I was a deep sleeper and would usually sleep all the way through the night. This night, however, I awoke for some reason and, standing in the middle of the bedroom that I shared with my brother, was a figure in white. My brother and I shared a bunk bed, he on the top and me on the bottom. The bunk bed was against the wall on the far side of the room, opposite the door. The figure just stood there, motionless. I could not recall the features, but remember that it had a strange sort of luminescence. The best way I can describe it is like a faint type of television static, for those of us old enough to remember what that looked like. Needless to say, I was terrified, but due to the layout of the room, I could not run out without having to run past this thing, and I wasn't about to do that. I pulled the covers over my head, heart thumping through my chest, and at some point, sleep must have managed to take hold. I woke the next morning, relieved to see daylight, and went downstairs. My brother was still in bed when I left the bedroom, seemingly asleep, and my dad had gone to work early as usual, and my mother was making breakfast for my brother and I. I immediately told her about the man that I saw in the room, and she dismissed it, saying that I must have dreamt it. She knew I was fascinated by ghosts, so thought my reading material must have fueled a strange dream. She soon changed the subject, and that was that, or so I thought because five or ten minutes later, my brother arose and came down to the kitchen for breakfast. The first thing he said was, Mum, there was a man in our room last night. I recall my mum briefly stopping whatever it was that she was doing, and then starting again, before dismissing my brother's statement the same way that she did mine. But it was that small beat that she took, presumably to compose herself, that made it obvious that, though she was dismissing it verbally, what my brother had said had affected her. My brother and I talked more about it as we got ready for school that day. The figure was pacing up and down the room with its hands behind its back when my brother saw it, rather than standing still. I was scared of going to bed for many nights after that, but perhaps I should have been more mindful of my poor mother, who had to be alone in the house all day once we left for school after hearing two separate accounts of the same supernatural entity for her, from her two sons. If she ever did see the ghost, either that day or later on, she never told me. The only rational explanation I can come up with for this is that my brother was, and is, a bit of a joker. It's possible he heard me telling my mother about the ghost and then appeared to come down and corroborate the story even though he hadn't seen anything at all. But this is all I've got to explain it all the way. If he didn't do that, then it is genuinely odd. The problem with this explanation is that it would have been strange and quite out of character for him to sneak downstairs and hang around the door to listen to the conversation I was having with my mother at first, before then making an appearance and adding to the story but it's the only way I can explain what happened unless we both had the same dream which is also unlikely but 
still a possibility. So that's my story. I really do not entertain the idea of the supernatural at all anymore, having developed into more of an atheist. So for me to hold this story up for closer inspection tells you how much it still intrigues and bothers me. So thanks very much, Steve. And again, it's, it's like I say, I, I think what I said before the story about, you know, that feeling is probably going to apply to everyone here. But, you know, like again, like, you know, I'm, I grew up unreligious. And uh, for me, like the idea of ghosts, it's, I, I'm not sure how to square it away because at the same time, I'm not sure I really believe in like an afterlife or anything like that, like, you know, like a, a heaven or anything like that. Or, or like, um, you know, so. So then what do I think of ghosts? I, I don't know. It's weird. I, it's a hard one. I've always assumed ghosts, you know, I've sort of, I've quite, I've always quite latched on to that, that kind of idea of the stone tape theory, that sort of something like that, like some sort of energy or something. I don't know. But anyway, next we've got a story from Matt. That's another ghost story. And Matt says, here's a ghost story from my dad. We live in a town in Bedfordshire on the Grand Union Canal. My dad is prone to flights of fancy and has an active imagination, but my mother is a diehard sceptic with very little patience for ghosts and gribblies, which is a fantastic word there. Sorry, I'm going to just butt in gribblies. I like that a lot. Anyway, when I was very young, my dad took a second job in a pub in the evenings. On weeknights, he would finish at closing time and walk the 15 minutes walk home. One evening, he arrived home in a panic, waking my mum up. He was white as a sheet and clearly scared. He claimed that as he crossed the canal bridge on his way home, he did a double take and he had seen a figure on the towpath. The streets were empty and the night was dark. The towpath was dimly lit by the streetlights from the adjacent road. My dad had noticed the figure was short and stooped, wearing old-fashioned clothes. The figure was sprinkling bread into the water, though there were no ducks there to be fed and no bread appeared to be hitting the water, as if it was disappearing in mid-air before landing. My dad called down. Are you all right? and the figure turned to stare at him. He says the figure's face was completely expressionless, and the eyes were white, glowing faintly in the semi-darkness. A feeling of pure dread swept through him, and he bolted for home. To this day, he swears blind that this tall tale is true, and despite his numerous cock-and-ball stories I've grown up with, I can't help but wonder about this one. My mum says he was drunk and tired, and is a very silly old man, but a certain look of trepidation crosses her eyes when this story is brought up and she admits that she has never seen my dad that scared before or since. I've crossed that same bridge and walked over the same spot he saw the figure standing in and seen and felt nothing. I've been there at all hours, many, many times, and I've never had the good or bad luck to see anything beyond ducks and geese. Thanks very much, Matt, for, for sharing your father's story. And yeah, absolutely love that word, gribblies. And I've never heard that slang before in my life. Anyway, I like that. So next up, we've got a story from Ralph. And Ralph says, I was lucky enough to grow up in a sprawling five-bed Victorian terrace in Jesmond, a pleasant suburb of Newcastle in the northeast of England in the late 80s and early 90s. The house was amazing to be a kid in. Massive rooms full of untouched original features, box rooms to hide and make dens in. I was extremely happy there and only remember it feeling safe, warm and welcoming. That said... This place was alive. You could almost smell the history there, and I vividly recall lying in bed as a young child and just listening to the noises it made at night. It was incredible, constant bumps and creaking. Not quite Encanto, yeah, I have small kids, but a non-Disney equivalent, maybe. People did see stuff there as well. My dad recalls a close family friend turning up to a dinner party they were hosting shortly after moving in and walking into the living room 
where two other couples were sat chatting with drinks. She looked around, seeming confused, before turning pale and sitting down very suddenly. Apparently, when she had walked into the room, she had seen an old lady sitting on a rocking chair in the corner of the room, smiling at her as if waiting to be introduced. She had assumed she was my dad's mum, but both chair and the old lady had vanished with the second look. The events I want to tell you about happened sometime in the run-up to Christmas, 94 or 95. I don't recall which. I would have been about 10, my sister was 7. We'd got up early on a Saturday to watch cartoons, and my mum came down an hour or so later to start prep for some meal or other that we were having that day. I remember hearing my mum swearing, which never happened, and was enough to take me away from the TV to see what was going on. At the time, we had this enormous and absolutely ancient freezer, which was stored in a big cupboard under the main stairs of the house. It was probably bought in the late 70s and must have weighed an absolute tonne. Unfortunately, it defrosted overnight, wasting a huge amount of food that my parents had packed in prior to Christmas. My parents were seriously pissed as money was a bit more scarce for them back then. My dad went over the road to get the help of one of his mates to wrestle the broken beast of a freezer out of the space it was wedged in. It took some doing, and I remember sitting there as an unhelpful spectator, watching them labour over it. Eventually they succeeded, and my dad, looking behind the now vacant space, noticed that the socket the freezer was plugged into had been switched off at the wall. My dad looked very confused, but switched it back on. Immediately, flames shot out from the workings at the back of the freezer, igniting some of the rubbish that lay on the floor that had built up over the years of the freezer standing in situ. The freezer, as you can imagine, was quickly turned back off and the burning paper easily extinguished. What was less easy to do was think about what would have happened had the freezer gone up in the night, under the wooden staircase, with me and my family all asleep upstairs. I don't know who or what turned it off, and I can't put forward any sort of logical theory. The plug was absolutely unreachable for man or child, and the mechanics don't work for it to be switched off by something falling on it. Besides, there was nothing next to it when the freezer came out. All I know is I remain eternally grateful to the unknown benefactor. The second event happened in very close proximity, maybe two weeks later. My mum at the time worked for a junior school, and being as she was a keen cook, had volunteered to make a load of mince pies for a staff Christmas party. She had made maybe 50 or 60 pies and left them overnight in the middle of the kitchen table on one big round tray covered in cling film. At that time, my parents had recently installed a ridiculously oversensitive burglar alarm that was turned on each night and required the internal kitchen door to be closed in order for it to be set. It went off all the time with any sort of wind or movement outside, and my dad was constantly getting up in the night to switch the thing off. Anyway, after a disturbance-free night, my mum woke up, went downstairs, turned off the alarm and opened the kitchen door. The round tray was turned upside down on the floor with the cling film lying next to it. Every pie had gone, and the entire floor was covered with the icing sugar that had covered them with no footprints bar one. In the middle of the room was the single print of a child's bare foot and nothing else. It might have been me or my sister sleepwalking, I suppose. The idea of consuming that quantity of mince pies as an adult seems horrendous, never mind the age we were then, so it seems unlikely. We also, neither of us, knew how to operate the alarm at the time, which should have gone off with any movement in the kitchen at all. I spoke to my dad in the lead-up to writing this, who recalled the events exactly as I have written them, He's open-minded and philosophical about them, and he shares my view of the house, having a very nice feeling about it. My mum holds more traditional religious views, and does not like to talk about it. Thanks very much, Ralph. So that story actually reminded me of... Um, it's, less, it's not so much a story, because I don't really have much to tell, but, but, it, but it really reminded me of um, 
my friend's parents, uh, my friends knew these two people and they, they, they built their own houses for, for a few years and um, gradually kind of like worked up enough money to buy a, a larger house, like a larger old house. Um, and it was in the grounds of an old um an old um, asylum, like an old hospital. And it's actually, it's kind of famous now that the old hospital grounds, because um, it eventually got pulled down like a few years back and, and you know, some development of apartments was built on it. But it was like an old Victorian asylum. And, um, it, you know, like that, those sort of places do sort of tend to become sort of like, not famous, I guess, but, you know, they're, 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 there's a certain sect of society that's quite interested in you know like those old kind of like architecture and stuff and it got quite famous for that but anyway they moved into the grounds of that and it was like the main surgeon's house i think or something like that or or, or like the head of the uh the hospital um this house was like built for them so it, it was it was like on the grounds but it was very far, far away from the hospital like right back at the start of the long driveway that led up to it um and um they ended up moving out because they uh thought it was haunted which sounds ridiculous but but i think they moved out for other reasons as well but that was a big part of the reason and 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 your story really reminded me of this story because they would also have switches turn off all of their electrical equipment every night not every night but like it happened frequently and um and and the other thing that that maybe um like that thought that also reminded me of it was um the story about the old lady in the um rocking chair because they had several stories of holding um uh, parties and and uh, having people stay over because they they were like just an old couple in this really big house so they used to frequently have like dinner parties and and their guests would stay over and they had frequent stories from their guests of people seeing an old lady um in the dining room uh it, it, it was pretty weird um it was a pretty weird house uh and i only went there once and it was a big old like it looked like the res you know it was the sort of house like it was the sort of like um you know like an estate you know like a sort of resident evil style manor had like a big main staircase and things like that it was it was pretty creepy and say so they ended up moving out i think say so that they, they 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 ended up moving off to a different part of the country and that so i think they had other reasons to move but um but a big part of the reason was that they never said they they never felt comfortable there and that they always thought it was haunted and it unsettled them um but anyway your story just reminded me of that so i guess i'm chipping in again i'll shut up let's go on to andreas's story andreas says this happened back in august 2008 as i was hiking together with my father across the taffjord mountains in western norway up in the taffjord mountains which is the case for most Norwegian mountains, the Norwegian Tourist Association have various cabins where you can spend the night and find food before moving on. Hiking from cabin to cabin is a very common way of experiencing the mountains, and usually you share the cabins with a lot of other people. In any case, that's what we were doing, and we had decided to spend the night at a cabin called Danschikta. The cabin was situated on a mountain plateau, about 1,400 metres over sea level, with little to no vegetation. While the landscape is stark and barren and very beautiful, the cabin itself was rather unremarkable. Unlike many other cabins, the cabin is fairly new and certainly does not immediately invite associations of old fairy tales, creaking floorboards or ghostly visits. We were also not alone and there were a dozen or so other hikers there with us. 
However, the cabin was not full and when we got our room, there were still a few to spare when we called it night. Our room was long and rectangular, with two bunk beds placed along one wall, with the door on the short end of the room and a window on the other, with about a metre and a half separating the bunk beds from the wall on the opposite side. We were sleeping in this bunk bed closest to the door, with me in the top bunk and my father in the one underneath. As it was getting later in the summer, it was starting to get darker again at night. We'd drawn the curtains, but there was still a ray of light from the dim summer night sky peering through from the window, through the room and to the door. Some time after falling asleep, I woke to the sound of someone rummaging around in the room. I could hear footsteps and the sounds of fabric against fabric as someone was taking off their backpack. I lifted my head into the top bunk and peered over the plank rail. However, instead of my father looking for something, the dim light from the window revealed a tall man in his thirties or early forties, immediately next to our bed. He had short cropped hair and square glasses and he wore a dark long-sleeved undershirt and he was looking down towards the floor as if he was trying to see where he could put his things. So far, I did not feel alarmed in any way. People sometimes arrive at the cabins late at night after the lights are put out and I assumed he was looking for a place to sleep. The room was dark, so he might not have realised that this was occupied. Also, we had a free bunk bed in our room, but as I knew there were other free rooms further down the hall, I thought I should tell him. I was just about to do so, but as I cleared my throat to speak, he turned to look at me. Our eyes met and he stared at me with a frightful mix of puzzlement and, well, intensity or desperation or anger. It's hard to describe, but I suddenly felt something was very, very wrong. I don't know how long we looked at each other like that, but it must have been a few seconds at least. He just stood there utterly frozen, just staring at me. I don't know what possessed me to do it, but eventually I slowly reached out towards him. It was like through my fear and adrenaline I just had to know. He was so close I should be able to touch him if my arm was fully outstretched. However, as my hand moved towards him, he slowly slid backwards away from my hand and sank into the darkness behind him. Still staring at me as he disappeared. I quickly fumbled for my flashlight, but when I turned it on there was no trace of the man, neither him nor any gear that was not ours, and the door was closed. I spoke out to my father, but he had been sleeping and had not seen or heard anything. When I told him about what happened, he became very quiet, as this was not the kind of thing we would ever really talk about. Anyways, I can't give a good explanation for what happened. I suppose the most rational explanation is that it was some sort of waking hallucination. I've tried to see if I could find anything on people who had gotten lost or died up in the mountains, as sadly happens from time to time, but I've not been able to find anyone who either matches the description or the location. However, I've also been reluctant to ask anyone who might know, as I don't want to come across as a crazy person. So thanks very much, Andreas. And apologies if I, I butchered the, uh, some of the... Uh, well, I definitely butchered some of the uh, pronunciations there. Uh, but thanks very much for your story. So next, we've got Robin and Paul, and they're very many chickens who all have great names. Uh, Robin and Paul says... We moved into our home almost three years ago now. It's in a pretty bleak spot. Wheat's Hallow, between the villages of Blacko and Gisburn in Lancashire, or Yorkshire, depending on the year and who you ask. <laughs> we are in the heart of Pendle Witch Country and have a great view of the hill from our house. A couple of photos included of it looking suitably witchy. 
It's a farmhouse with a barn attached, and we bought it as it gave us the scope for my parents to move in with us from Devon, where I grew up, but for everyone to still have their own much-needed space. We don't know exactly how old the house is. The deeds are long lost and we have no date stone, but as it didn't appear on maps from 1849 and then showed up in maps from 1892, we can hazard a guess at around 150 years old. It needed, and well, it still needs, a lot of work. It had been rented for 10 years to previous tenants, who apparently didn't stay very long, and then they abandoned it for about two years. My parents were able to complete the work required on their barn side fairly quickly, but my husband Paul and I are still soldiering on with the renovations required to the farmhouse. We're still not quite watertight. Anyway, I won't bore you with the Pendle witch stuff. Suffice to say that one of the witches, Janet Preston, was supposed to have lived in this area, so we fairly quickly started attributing anything weird in the house to the fact that Janet did it as a joke. We moved in on the 17th of January, and winters here are hard, so we quickly realised the first two things that absolutely had to get done were the roof and the windows. Our roof has stones on it, not slates. They vary in size and are extremely heavy, so it was a big job and it took a long time. At the time the roof was being done, my husband and I were sleeping in the most habitable bedroom, which would actually originally have been part of the barn. There was a lot of nightlife here, owls, foxes, hedgehogs, any number of things that could make a lot of racket during the night. My husband, the most sceptical man on the planet, started saying that during the night he'd been woken by the sound of running on the roof, which had then continued after he was awake, so it had not been a dream. The rest of us dismissed this as obviously being one of the aforementioned nightlife scurrying about. Paul, however, was adamant that he knew what scurrying sounded like. We had plenty of mice in the walls, and this was no mouse. This sounded like a heavy-footed person, right above his head. We just assumed the isolation was making him crazy, and we let him get on with it. One night, however, I was awoken by the sound of running on the roof above our bedroom, and exclaimed loudly, you can imagine what, to which Paul beside me, who had clearly been awake for a while, uttered a triumphant, I told you I wasn't crazy. It was running, no other way to describe it evenly spaced footfalls, as if a person was up on the roof charging about. I suggested Paul go look, and he suggested that I piss off. (laughs) He'd been up there during the day. He regularly went up there to check out the work the roofers were doing, as when else would he be able to look at the roof that closely, and he couldn't see any evidence of anyone having midnight parties up there. So we don't know. What is strange is that you normally wouldn't hear someone walking or running on the roof. I'd been in the house plenty while the roofers were up there, and at best it was muffled thuds while they were walking about. That was the first story. Our drives curved round to what was originally the back of the house, and would once have been fields, but at some point a stone porch was added on, and that is now the front and the main garden. We wouldn't always notice cars or the postman pulling in, so for that reason, and security as we were remote, Paul installed a driveway sensor. It would trigger when someone drove in and sound a bing-bong in the house. We also don't have a doorbell, so this would alert us that there could be someone wandering around aimlessly outside, wondering which door to go to and what to do when they got there. This worked well until our dogs worked out that the bing-bong meant exactly the same as the doorbells that they had previously known, and meant a person or something else exciting was going to happen, so it would go nuts, which was irritating. More irritating was the fact that it was set off by the slightest thing flying in front of the trigger. Bug, bat, leaf, anything. Cue overexcited hounds. Fairly regularly in the middle of the night, something would pass in front of it and it would bing bong annoyingly. Eventually, for all these reasons, I persuaded Paul that it would make for a far more peaceful life to get rid of the sensor 
and think about putting in a doorbell or something in the future. In the meantime, we could deal with lost delivery men and most of our mail goes to the neighbouring farm anyway. One night, which must have been about 4am I think from bleary recollection, I heard the familiar, annoying bing-bong. Luckily, the dogs must have been fast asleep as they didn't bark, so I went back to sleep. The next morning, Paul handed me a cup of tea and said that he had dreamt that he'd heard the driveway sensor last night, about 4am. I replied that no, it wasn't a dream and that I'd heard it too, and something must have flown in front of it again. So when are you going to take it out, I said. It is out, he replied. It's in the office with no batteries in it. The third story only affects me, but happened enough times that Paul doesn't think I'm losing it just yet. Repeatedly, while lying in bed, I'd feel someone grip my left wrist. Not hard, not trying to drag me anywhere, just holding it. It obviously was very unnerving, and if I pulled my arm away, the hold released. If I put it back, it would hold my wrist again. A cool hand and a light hold, but nothing there when I touched my wrist or turned the lights on, which I did, a lot. Then it would go. There was obviously nothing beside my bed. I also had some quite frequent, vivid, recurring dreams while in that room. Someone standing in the corner of the room, holding their arms out, but I couldn't see their face. Then two things happened. First, we moved bedrooms. We are hopping our way along the hallway, aiming for our forever bedroom at the end of the hall, closest to the bathroom. But this involves a lot of lime plastering for Paul, so it's a slow process. The smallest bedroom, opposite the bedroom we started out in, will become another bathroom upstairs. When we moved bedrooms, we no longer heard the running and the wrist-gripping and dreams ceased. The second thing that happened was while I was doing some work in the bathroom-to-be, I found the name Eleanor carved into the underside of a beam. Going to find my mum in her side of the house, I showed her the name and said, maybe our witch isn't Janet, maybe she's Eleanor. So now we talk to Eleanor instead, and since then, no more very spooky goings-on, just the occasional oddity. We don't know who lived here previously, the deeds were destroyed, so we don't know if someone called Eleanor lived here and carved her name into the beam, but the carving is pretty deep, on a beam that would have formed part of the roof of the barn. So, a plausible explanation for the name in the beam, but no explanation for the running. I'm sure there could have been some sort of technical explanation that explains the unbattery driveway sensor going off on its own, just the once. Or we have a witch that just wanted us to get her name right. Or the house we refer to as our problem child continues to test our love and devotion pushing the boundaries of our patience to see if we really truly mean it when we tell it that, unlike everyone else, we're not going to abandon it to the howling winds and freezing rain, no matter what it does. Whatever it is, we'll be back at that bedroom at Christmas as we have people staying and only one other functioning bedroom. So we'll see what happens and report back. So thanks very much, Robin and Paul, and all of the uh, chickens whose names are in the email and uh, I liked a lot. Your house also sounds amazing, uh, by the way, on on, on many levels. But anyway, uh, thanks very much for your stories. And uh, this next one is going to be the final story for today. Um, I'm going to do a part two because we have had so many stories. But this next one, so it's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, So this comes from Jeffrey. And Jeffrey says, I've been mulling over a submission for Christmas Campfire for at least three years now. I've not brought myself to commit this story to paper. The situation changed this year, which I'll cover later. I feel the time to share is now. This is a ghost story, a story of odd occurrences, but it's also a story of my family over five generations and the house that we were able to call home. I grew up in a modest house in a city in northern Ontario in Canada. The house I grew up in was over 100 years old, not architecturally unique, 
and had been in our family since 1920. It was originally purchased by my great-grandmother as a home for her and her two daughters after the passing of her husband. Throughout the years, various members of our rather large family have lived in this house. During the Second World War, my great-grandmother rented rooms to soldiers and sailors who were on their way to Europe to do their part. The first supernatural event that I was ever told about in the house, and the earliest that I'm aware that happened, was the death of my great-grandmother in the late 1940s. She passed away in her bedroom, the room that would eventually become my bedroom decades later. She started calling out for someone, so my grandfather came to her room thinking that she'd called him. She asked him if she could hear the beautiful music, which he admitted he could not. She then told him that Robert and the baby were there to get her and take her home. She then quietly passed away in a rocking chair whilst my grandfather held her hand. Robert, her husband, had passed away 20 years previous and the baby was her third daughter who died in infancy during the Spanish flu epidemic. One of the sailors who stayed in the house before shipping out once came back to visit. He told some very humorous stories about eating ice cream and watching the young ladies walk past and my great-grandmother admonished him for it. He also told us about encountering a man on the landing of the house who he didn't recognise. He thought it was another soldier or sailor nodding to him and he went about his day. There were no other men staying in the house at the time and no one knew who he was talking about. Of course, he never saw this man again and no one else did either that he was aware of. While there are other stories, I am of course most aware of the things that took place when I was growing up. There are always the sounds of footsteps going up and down the maple staircase and upstairs hallways. My father would always tell me that this was the sound of the old house settling. The regular and distinct pattern of the movement was not the sounds of the old house. When my younger sister was between five and six years old, she had extended bouts of what I can only describe as nocturnal conversations. She would regularly sit up in bed and have long conversations with the kids in the mirror. Being an old family house, most of our furniture was equally antique, and the mirror in question was an old Edwardian mirrored vanity that was in her room. She would hold very animated conversations with these invisible children, and she would also respond to questions that were posed to her while she was talking. My mother would regularly tell her to go back to sleep, to which my sister would respond that Mary Alice wanted her to come and play. Mary Alice was the name of the deceased daughter from the flu epidemic. When I was in high school, I worked in a restaurant on weekends, often late into the night. I'd come home some days at 4 or 5am. I'd shower and head to bed, but often could hear the sounds of chairs moving in our kitchen. They had rubber feet and they made a distinct sound being dragged over the hardwood floor. The sounds of the drawers opening and closing, specifically the silverware drawer. That sound is very distinct and not easily replicated by a settling house. One early morning after work, I was met by another sister who was sleepwalking, something I had never encountered before. She asked me for a pair of scissors. I told her to go back to bed. She told me that he would be very mad because she didn't have scissors. I flippantly told her to tell him to find his own scissors. She went back to her room and I distinctly heard the sounds of retreating footsteps down the stairs behind me. One year, my youngest sister had a sleepover birthday, a bunch of preteen girls flouncing about all night in the downstairs living room. At one point, the following morning, these girls all got on about weddings and dresses. My mother got out some of the family photo albums to show off a number of different weddings from our family history. Two of the girls stopped my mother as she was turning pages and pointed out different people, saying that there is the lady in the dress from upstairs. They stopped my mother on a picture of her Aunt Bess 
who had indeed lived upstairs in the 1930s and 40s, but had passed away in the room that would eventually become our nursery. The girls said that they had seen her watching them from the rocking chair that was still kept in that room. My mother had a small electric bird in a cage. It was a cheap electric toy from the 60s. You put in a battery and the speaker under the cage would make the sound of a chirping bird incessantly until you turned it off. As it was a silly toy, we rarely put a battery in it. Honestly, that chirping bird was just so annoying. Many were the times that I would be up late when that stupid thing would just chirp away without a battery in it, powered by some unseen force. We had a litany of pets throughout the years, and while none of them behaved in any sort of crazed way, it was not unusual to catch them watching something unseen move across the room. Cats who would sit on the back of chairs and watch someone zipping about. Dogs that would stare into the corners, tilting their heads back and forth. None of our dogs liked going into the basement in all the years that I lived in that home. My mother at one point ran a daycare from our home. Our dining room was given over to bins of stuffed toys and Legos. One lunchtime, my mother called for all the kids to clean up their toys before lunch and inspected the dining room before she served them. One thing my mother was particular about was cleaning up after playtime. Satisfied that her charges had cleaned up, she served them lunch, and whilst they were all eating, they all heard the very distinct sound of someone playing in the bin of Legos. She got up immediately and was treated to the sight of a pile of Legos in the middle of the floor in the play space, a space that she had previously confirmed was clean. The small pile was no more Legos than could fit in a child's hand. Another time, at the end of the day and cleaning up, I went through the dining room to find all of the toys arranged to be sitting up and watching whoever came into the room. It was like walking into a creepy doll display with every stuffed animal, doll and action figure all sitting up in the toy bin with their faces out watching the world. My mother once admitted to using a Ouija board in the house with a friend. She said that the planchette spelled out the name of Aunt Bess, which scared her enough to stop with the board right there. She said she moved the planchette to goodbye and broke contact. Afterwards, she did not dispose of the board. She hid it inside of the brown insulation of the attic. It was still there when I was younger. So what has changed in this last year that drove me to finally send this story to you? The house left its mark on the people who lived there. My mother said she rarely felt frightened in the house, but to her it was a member of the family. It was warm and inviting, and it made her happy and secure. My grandmother often would say the same thing. My father, however, was never at ease in the house. He was often tense and easy to anger. After he had a few drinks in him, if you talked about the house, he would tell you about bad dreams he had of dark shadows on the stairs and cold hands grabbing him in his bed, trying to turn him over. My father stopped going into the basement for many years once I was old enough to get things from downstairs, and he admitted to feeling watched down there and telling stories of moving light bulbs, shadows that didn't go away, and buzzing of bees. My grandfather had kept apiaries in the backyard that he would winter in our basement long before I was born. My mother loved the home and the family it represented to her. My father felt out of place in the home and that he was not welcome. In these last few years, their marriage finally broke down and they began the process of divorce. They were constantly fighting with each other. Neither would relinquish the house to the other, so eventually... The courts ordered the house sold. After 100 years in the family, it was sold off and, sadly, the entire lot was levelled for a parking lot for a neighbouring school. This focal point of my family's history has now been relegated to history itself. That's it. The story of my family home and some of the strange events that I encountered there. There are many others. Piano music, grandfather clock that chimed without being wound, the glass of antique cabinets that cracked randomly on Christmas Day three years in a row, missing toys, 
voices when no one else was home. My sister's attempts at spirit photography. There were so many. I visited the site of the torn down house the day following its destruction and it felt so very empty and quiet, like a churchyard or cemetery. I'm sure that's due to the emotional investment that I had in my childhood home. But maybe something else was still there. Or rather, for the first time, there was nothing there at all. Thanks for the opportunity to tell my story. Merry Christmas. Yeah, thanks very much, Jeffrey. Uh, it's a great story and I would like to hear the rest at some point, especially the spirit photography story. Um, but thank you very much for sharing. And uh, that is going to be an end to today's Christmas campfire. I'll be back with part two sometime after Christmas between the new year, probably about the 27th or 28th, on those kind of limbo days where we're fat from eating and nothing's quite got back to speed yet. Um, I'll, I'll pop it up then. Uh, but until then, thanks very much for listening. As always, this kind of signifies the end of another year of Dark Histories. And uh, personally, I just want to say thank you to everyone who wrote in and shared their stories. Um, you know, it's so wonderful to read the emails because generally, you know, people share with me like what where they're listening to the podcast from and you know when they started listening and stuff and and it's just really nice to read that you know um that you know that the, the podcast is still growing and we've still got such a a mix of people from all around the world in all different situations and it's it's just really great to read you know it, it really you know it makes me um you know feel really pleased with what we've built you know over the last years with dark history so you know, thanks very much for writing your stories in. And um, as I say, thank you very much for all your Christmas wishes. And uh, I'd like to reciprocate and, uh, you know, wish everyone a Merry Christmas. You know, a happy holidays, whatever it is that you uh, celebrate. If you just got a day off work, you know, enjoy your day off work. Um, so thanks very much, say, for another year of Dark Histories. And uh, here's to the next one. Uh, I'll be back again in a few days, like I say, with the next part. But until then... Merry Christmas, sleep time. <laughs>